You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 71 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. The basic conditions to qualify for the small business CGT concessions have never been basic. They always have been the greatest hurdle to take when trying to qualify. And these not so basic basic conditions just got even more complicated, but only when you are selling shares or units. I met with Adrian Bailey to better understand these changes. Adrian is a solicitor with Cleary Hall in Sydney and does a lot of work around the small business CGT concessions. I started by asking Adrian whether it just feels that way or whether the basic conditions really are that complex. Here's his answer. They are complex, and they're getting more complex, unfortunately. And it's certainly something that every time I get a query on whether somebody meets the small business concessions, I will go back to the legislation and I'll go through each of the steps. They are set out there, and there are things that you can miss if you're not going back and reviewing them. And certainly that's often I tell the solicitors that work with me that you need to go back to legislation and, and read it. there's so much detail. There is. And it can be a little bit of a rabbit hole where if you go down one particular area, you, you go down there and you might find yourself with an issue if you don't go down that rabbit hole. In the 2017-18 budget, so not the May budget just gone, but the one beforehand, 9th of May 2017, the government announced that they would be doing some targeted amendments to the small business concessions. Like most budget announcements these days, it was quite brief as to what the requirements were or what the changes were going to be, but they mentioned it was going to be an enhanced integrity measure and it would change for CGT events relating to shares and units and would be effective from 1 July 2017. So in reading that, I remember reading that at the time. And Which they have now changed to 1st of July 2019. Uh, have they? I thought it's still 17 as far as I know. The Division 7A amendments. Oh, I see. Have, it was the Division 7A yeah, amendment that was yeah. moved to 1st of July, July 2019. 2019. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And it's retrospective, yeah. which frightens everybody. Yeah. And so at this stage, it is still retrospective. I understand there is some talk of it not being retrospective and because they've released the draft legislation now, but... At this stage, still retrospective to 1 July 2017. I'm really surprised about the retrospective because I thought it wasn't, you couldn't do that. I thought it was illegal to do anything retrospective. I thought there was kind of, I'm not sure where that's in the constitution, but that it was a fundamental principle of our legal system that you can't do something retrospectively. I wouldn't say it's in the constitution, but it's a general policy that you shouldn't be doing retrospective legislation, particularly in in tax legislation. Because people have to have the confidence that they can structure their affairs as the law at the time is. Yeah, the law needs to be predictable. Yeah. However, there are there's certainly been departures from that in terms of retrospective legislation. And really, I mean, the main ones where it started was when we had the bottom of the harbour schemes, tax fraud schemes back in the, the 70s and the 80s. So they were brought in and they were retrospective. It's a little bit more common these days, unfortunately, for the government to announce retrospective legislation. Their attitude is probably, we told you that it's coming many yeah. times, you already knew what was coming, it yeah. just wasn't law yet. Yeah. The, the issue, particularly with this legislation, is that it's not technically retrospective in that they said on 9th of May 2017, we're going to make these changes and they're going to be effective from 1 July 2017. So people... New. New up, well, these changes are going to come in 1 July 2017. We're not quite sure what they are, but we know something's happening. 
However, the, the draft legislation, and it's still in draft, um, was only reintroduced in February 2018. So you have a gap there between 1 July 17 and February 2018. When nobody really knew what was coming. Yeah, exactly. And what we've seen of the, the draft, it's, it's much wider than what you would think from that announcement. So from my perspective in reading that announcement, there's always been a bit of a loophole, not, not anymore, always been a bit of a loophole in the CDT small business concessions, where if I'm... For example, if I'm selling shares in a company, and it can be a very large company that is not a small business entity, so the turnover isn't isn't large, sorry, is, is over the two million, and the value of that could be very large. So it's not that I'm selling the shares of the company; it's actually the company selling a share portfolio it was holding. I oh, know. Sorry, yeah, it's me selling shares in in this company. Okay. So, so for example, I own ten percent of the shares in a business that is worth twenty million dollars and all of the shares are sold for that $20 million. When you look at the tax outcome under the old small business concessions, I'm not connected to the company, so I don't have to take its assets into account for the maximum asset value test. But I have to look at myself, and if I'm a small business entity myself, if I, for example, if I don't meet maximum net asset value, if my entity that holds my shares is carrying on another business and its turnover is less than $2 million, then I could deal with that gain using small business concessions, even though that company that I've invested in is nowhere near a small business. So there there was that loophole there and there was some more inventive ways of creating a business in my shareholding entity so that I could then use the concessions. So when the announcement was made, well, I thought reading it, I thought, well, that's what it's going to target. So it's basically, imagine you have a discretionary trust that has a large share portfolio, but below $6 million. Yep. That discretionary trust then buys a corner store, which qualifies as a small business entity. Yep. And now I can sell all my entire share portfolio, capital gains tax-free, because I qualify as a small business that, entity. That, that's right. That's really where that loophole was there. And it could even apply in that example where my net asset position was over six million, as long as my turnover of my micro business in my discretionary trust uh, was less than two, two I could meet the requirements. And yeah. clearly And so I could have had a share portfolio of thirty million in the discretionary trust, yeah. have a corner store that makes sales of ten thousand yeah. a year and yeah. as I get my entire thirty million capital gains. That, that's right. Free. Yeah. And my understanding that um, one of the real abuses, I guess you'd say, of that loophole was somebody in, for example, in a discretionary trust and taking an investment in a tree plantation. So your, your normal trees, plantations that get, do the rounds in terms of investing in that. And because of the, the structure of that, you're deemed to be carrying on a business and your turnover is less than the $2 million. So that's what it's aimed at. Unfortunately, the way that the legislation has been drafted and the way that they've done it, it has It's gone further than that. I mean, it has led to some inequality within using the concessions. So we're in the situation now where we have this draft legislation. There have been some changes from the initial exposure draft, and we as a firm made some submissions on that, and one of the submissions we made... Oh, was, you did well, because I think the submission period was only two weeks or so. Oh, yeah, so yeah. You but, were, uh, you've you got were to, on the spot. You've got to get them in quickly. And, and one of those submissions that we made was, it, whether it was us or no doubt other people made, it was accepted. But the reality is, is that they're very likely to come in in the current format. We have a situation where many, not many, but a lot of taxpayers from 1 July 2017 till now would have sold shares or units who may have qualified under the old rules and not been involved in any sort of mischief who will now not meet those requirements. 
So the tax office have said in, in their guidance in relation to this, they've said that you, in effect, you lodge your returns under the old rules, and then when the new rules come back in, you go back and you amend your returns if you don't meet the concessions, and they won't impose penalties or interest. But it's still a scenario... You still have to pay the higher tax or, that, lose, the, or lose the concession. That, that's right. So some of the new concepts that we have in the new rules is that we have this concept of an object entity. So remembering that this is only dealing... Well, these changes only deal when we're selling shares or units in another entity. Mm. So that entity is the object entity. And, and I'm surprised that this is a new concept because already under the old rules, we had the concept of an object yeah. entity where you needed to be a CGT concession stakeholder in the object entity and then you needed to have a 90% small business participation percentage yep. in the interposed entity. So the word object yeah, entity it was, was already there. Yeah, yeah. It's already there. Does it now have a different meaning? For, for these rules, it does. So... With that, the main thing is that the object entity must satisfy either the $6 million test or the small business entity test, so the $2 million turnover test. So it's no, in effect no longer the case that we can have the sale of those shares and we're looking really at the taxpayer. We still have to look at the company or unit trust that the, the sale is occurring in and that company or unit trust has to meet the requirements itself. If we use an example of Bob being an individual taxpayer, having a discretionary trust that has 100% shares in the object company before only Bob needed to run a business or be an active yep. active entity, now the company also needs to be an active it, 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 entity. It do, yeah, it does. Uh, and it needs to meet the $6 million or the $2 million test in, in itself. And there's also some modifications to how you look at that company as well, as opposed to the old rules. And so we'll, we'll touch on those as well. So it, it, as I said, it is really targeted at where you have a not a controlling individual in relation to that object company. So the two modifications in terms of aside from having to meet those requirements really deal with active assets uh, as well as in terms of having a look at what entities are connected to this, this new object entity. So under our original active asset rule, as I have mentioned in the past, we have an active asset if it's used or held ready for use in a business or inherently connected to it. That's modified slightly when we're holding shares because obviously the shares are not used for business. So then in effect, under the old rules, you look through and 80% of the assets must be active assets in relation to it. So they've been modified slightly, that rule. So, And one of the modifications is that there is now a look-through approach for shares or units owned by the object entity and that excludes shares in other entities and financial instruments and cash unless trading stock. And that's new because before you could use financial instruments and cash as yep. active assets. That, that's right. So if we're to use a simplified example, we're selling our shares in our company It has $50,000 worth of active assets and $50,000 in cash. It's not going to meet this new test. So we're not going to have a, we're not going to meet our requirements yes, under the new test. Because under the old rule, it would have a 100% yes. active asset ratio. Yep. Under the new rules, only 50%. That, that's right. So the 80% threshold is still there, but it's now going to be harder to meet. And another example may be that it in turn holds shares in other entities. And again, they're excluded from the purpose of our test. So, That's going to be more difficult to meet. The other test that is going to be more difficult to meet is, I mentioned before, that either that entity must meet the small business entity, so the $2 million turnover, or the maximum net asset value position. When we're, when we're traditionally looking at what entities are connected to other entities, we have a threshold level of 40% in effect. 
So if I hold 40% of the shares in another company, that entity is connected to me and all of its assets are included in my test. Under these new rules, that's reduced to 20%. So if our object entity that we're selling shares in holds 20% of the shares in another company, then all of the assets of that company are taken into account for maximum net asset value test. All of them or 20% of them? All of them, because we're meeting our 20% oh, threshold. controlled. Yeah. Hmm. So in the past, uh, and again to try and work through an example, we're selling our shares in ABC Co. ABC Co. owned 30% of another company, which is worth $10 million, for example. Ignoring the active asset test for now, but uh, under the old rules, we would be taking 30% of $10 million into account, so that would be $3 million, obviously. Under the new rules, we have to take the whole $10 million into account. Because we control. Yeah, so automatically, we're outside of the, the test and we can't meet the requirements. So they are going to rule out a lot of taxpayers that would have otherwise have met the requirements, that would have sold on the basis of, I guess you'd say advice, that these are the requirements, you meet them now. There are some changes that are coming, but we're not sure what they are. If we think of that, this draft legislation was only introduced in February, so we've got a gap between 1 July 17 and February 2018 where taxpayers are going to get caught out. And so there are going to be some issues there. The other perspective of it is that it does... It does change a lot whether it is more advantageous to sell the assets of the company as opposed to selling the shares. Because in that example I just ran where we hold 30% of a $10 million company, if we're selling the assets of the business out of the company, we don't have to worry about these new tests. So that other company is not going to be connected to the taxpayer. So we only take into account $3 million rather than $10 million. So we're going to have scenarios where if we're selling shares, we don't meet the requirements. If we're selling assets, we do meet the requirements. So there is some inequality there in terms of, well, why does that get ruled out as opposed to, to this? So there's a couple of different scenarios as to how that could occur, but in effect, there are going to be people disadvantaged under the changes who haven't even been involved in any mischief, but just the way the legislation is drafted, they will no longer meet the concession requirements. Hmm. So in your example, when you said we are selling the assets, you mean we are selling the shares the company is holding? Oh, no. So our company is carrying on a business, and then it also holds 30% of the shares in something else. If we sell our business out of the company, then we look at the, the company as the taxpayer, and we don't have to apply these new rules. So for our maximum net asset oh, value test... Have, then the other company is not the object company, that, but that, the company selling the business assets is the object yeah, company. Yeah, that, that's right. And we don't... And the other company will not be connected to us because it's below 40%, as opposed to now, It's if we're selling the shares in our initial company, it's that 20% capture rate, or 20% test. We won't meet our concessions if we're selling the shares, but we will if we're selling the assets of the business. So I guess in terms of fairness, that's not particularly fair to the taxpayer because they should be obviously given the option as to which they want to do. In some scenarios, and in some business sales, a new buyer will only want to buy the shares. Traditionally speaking, if you're giving advice to a client about buying a business, it's buy the business assets and don't buy the shares in a company because then you inherit the risk with it. With a lot of businesses today, particularly where they hold things like government licenses or contracts, it's better to, it's buy, better the to buy the shares from a commercial perspective. An example of that might be, a, for example, a radiology practice. 
with radiology practices, they're licensed in, in effect by the government to have the machines and to do the services and the Medicare rebates and all those sorts of things. It's easier to buy the shares in that and keep those licenses where they are rather than mm, my transferring. Transferring, everything. yeah. And my understanding is some of those licenses can't be transferred. Or you've got scenarios where you might have a grandfathered business structure, such as a retirement home, which is under a particular rate. If you change that, you'll, you'll have to renegotiate the rates. So it will, from a commercial perspective, it may be the scenario that the clients still have to sell the shares and now they will be paying tax, whereas they wouldn't be if they're selling the assets. So obviously some fairly large changes and we'll wait and see what the final legislation is, but it's unlikely to differ too much from what it is now. So one of the major concessions that a taxpayer can have if they qualify are the small business concessions contained in subdivision 152. And there are a number of different concessions that you can utilise. And the purpose of them, really, when they were introduced, was to recognise a couple of different things in that, quite often, a small business entity, the business owners put all of their money during their lifetime into the business. So when they sell the business at the end of the day, that is, in effect, their retirement money. So the idea being that, well, if that's their retirement money, then hopefully they can obviously maximise that and that's what they're going to live on. So we have some some very generous concessions in some circumstances to allow that to occur. There are conditions that are required to be met in relation to those concessions. So in terms of covering off on meeting them, usually the first step is to assess whether a taxpayer meets those conditions. And there's a couple of different ones that we have to go through. And then after we meet those concessions, we then look at, well, what are each of the concessions and are there any additional requirements that we have to meet and if so, do we meet them and, and do we qualify? So in terms of the, the key parts of the basic conditions in 152A, the first one is that there is a CGT event in relation to a CGT asset and otherwise you would be subject to taxation. I mean, that one's relatively straightforward in mm. terms of... Can I actually ask you something there that confuses me? There are four CGT events that are specifically excluded from yep. Division 152. One is K7, the balancing adjustment, yep. but the other ones are J2, J5, and J6. Yep. And J5 is when we use the um, rollover provision to buy us another two years yes. and then and then apply the small business CGT concession. And I don't understand how that works if J5 is specifically excluded from being a CGT event that the um, small business yep. CGT concessions apply to. So, so J5 comes into effect if we apply the small business rollover and then we don't meet the requirements of it because there is a window where we have two years in order to to meet the, the small business rollover requirements. So acquire a replacement asset is usually that one. If we sell an asset for a $1 million gain, we have two years to acquire a new replacement asset in terms of a small business. If we don't do that within two years... Or, then or, it's G5? Yeah, that's J5. And then we have our taxing event then. Exactly. And then we can still apply the small business CGT concessions. We, we can, yeah. I see. So how is that possible when J5 is specifically excluded from the small business CGT concessions and then we actually apply them? Or is it that we have the taxing event of J5, so J5 is done, and then we look at it again? Maybe I'm splitting hairs. Yeah, I mean, there is there are separate in effect separate CGT events that we have. We have our J5 and we have our, usually it's going to be A1 event. So they are separate events and we look at them separately. But there is the capacity for you and it's relatively common planning technique to wait two years after sale 
if we haven't acquired something, then we have our J5 event and then we apply our concessions yeah, there. Yeah, I think it's particularly popular when the taxpayer is just under 55. No, that, that's right, because some of our requirements are in some of the concessions that we need to be 55 if we want to take money in our own, own hands and rather than super. Um, so it is if you're at 53 or 54, quite often the advice will be, okay, we sell, we apply our small business rollover if we meet the conditions, and then in a couple of years' time we, we then have our further event. Yeah. So it is something that's legitimate and legitimately done in those sorts of scenarios. Yeah. Um, the other, even if we don't, even if we don't, for example, are around that 55 mark and we just want to defer our taxing event for two years, that's that's something that's done with the idea from an economic perspective it's better that we have the money for two years in terms of the tax to be paid rather than it going to the government and we can use that money to, to do other things as long as you don't spend it all and then have no money to pay our tax. So that is something that's used in practice. Yeah. So, But I led you astray. Yeah, that's okay. So yeah. We started with that the first condition, for yeah. the basic conditions is that we need to have a CGT event. Yeah, which would otherwise have resulted in a gain. Our second, well, I wouldn't say second, but they're the, I guess they're sub-conditions they're all relating to the same thing. So either we're a small business entity, which I'll come back to, we satisfy the maximum net asset value test, and then there's a couple of further ones in terms of that we're a partner in a partnership that is a small business entity and it's a partnership asset. They all relate to, I guess, variations of business structure. But the two often things that you talk about in those sub-conditions is that we're either a small business entity or we meet the maximum net asset value test. Can I just quickly ask you something regarding the partner in a partnership? Let's say in partnership A, the um, partnership turnover is 10 million and there are five partners. Is it then calculated that my turnover is only 2 million or am I hit with the 10 million of the partnership? So yeah. do we look at the partnership as a whole or do we look at the partner's percentage of the uh, you, you would turnover? You would look at the partnership as a whole in that example. So you wouldn't meet the small business entity test. However, if you've got five partners and assuming that they've each got 20%, then you are not connected to that partnership. So for the purpose of the maximum net asset value test, you look at only your 20% of the value of the partnership and what any other other relevant assets. Because it is important to remember that it's an or test. It's small business entity or it's maximum net asset value. We don't have to meet both. So if we can meet one, then we we qualify in terms of that. Okay, so for the partnership... The, um, the turnover, we always look at the turnover of the partnership. We don't take into account your percentage as a partner. But for the net asset value test, if it's not a connected entity, then we only look at your share of the asset yep. value of the partnership. And, and I guess I should, pr should probably clarify that in terms of that turnover component is that just because we're a partner in a partnership doesn't mean that we're actually carrying on a business under these, this legislation. So one of the requirements of being a small business entity is that we're carrying on a business. So in respect of that, we can't meet that first element. It doesn't matter what the, the turnover is. So, oh, I see. When you're a partner in a partnership, you don't carry on a business because the partnership is carrying on the business. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those... So that means yeah. as a partner, I never qualify for the small business turnover test anyway. I always have to go for the asset value test yeah. anyway. Not unless I'm carrying on a business elsewhere. Oh, okay. Yeah. So... There are, and quite often that's where people will sometimes get not caught out, but you'll have a look at that and say, well, who's the actual taxpayer and are they carrying on a business? If they're not carrying on a business, and quite, this is where you'll have issues in terms of selling shares or units, then you have to rely on maximum and asset value test. There are two tests there to obviously recognise that businesses are different in that we might have a business with a very high turnover but a very low value and vice versa. So the classic example of that 
would be a farming enterprise. Turnover is quite low, but the capital assets in relation to it is quite high, so it would be very difficult for them to meet the maximum NASA value test. The other main basic condition is that we are selling an active asset. So an active asset is a, an asset that is used or held ready for use in relation to a business. And there are some ownership time periods in, require, in relation to that. The main one is that, in effect, it has to be active for at least half of its ownership life. If we've held it for more than 15 years, then it only has to be active for seven and a half years of that. But the general rule of thumb is to look at it, has it been active for at least half of the ownership period? Now, I guess where you could, you could have some issues in relation to that would be a scenario where we're looking at selling a business that has been used in a business. In our, in our business, but it hasn't been used by us for the last few years, we'd have to sit back and have a look and say, well, how long was it used in our business? If it's at least half of the period, then that's 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 okay. So aside from that, there are some... Yeah, the active asset test is done asset by asset. It, it is, yeah. Aside from that, there are uh, some uh, additional, what they call them additional basic conditions when we're selling shares or units. So... In effect, because there have been some changes in relation to legislation lately, we have to have at least 80% of the assets of the company or unit trust that we're selling our interests in are active, and then we've got a modified maximum net asset value test for that entity as well. So those are, and, and remembering that if we're selling shares or units, we're very unlikely to be a small business entity in our own right. So it's more often than not maximum net asset value tests we're relying on. I don't think I've mentioned, and it's a bit remiss of me, that the turnover test threshold is $2 million uh, and the maximum net asset value test is $6 million. So in terms of those amounts, uh, it's not hard for a, a business to exceed $2 million turnover because it's not just the turnover of that business, but it can also be connected entities. So quite often the one that we are looking at in practice is the maximum net asset value test. That's the one you'll generally hopefully qualify for. If you don't meet those concessions, and they're, they're what's called the, the basic concessions. Oh, basic conditions. Sorry, basic conditions. Thank you. If you don't meet those basic conditions, then you won't qualify for any of the small business concessions. So that, they're our gateway. If we can get into them, then that's our beginning. Uh, and there still may, may be some additional requirements in relation to some of our concessions. But with some of the concessions, you're basically home. If you meet the basic conditions, then you got them. I think the 50% yeah. active asset reduction, if you pass the basic conditions, you got that ex concession. That, that's right. So um, yeah, if you meet the basic conditions, small business 50%, so 152C, what is known as the active asset reduction, that's automatically, you, you automatically are eligible for that. In terms of the two tests, as I mentioned, there's a, the small business entity, which is a turnover test, and the maximum net asset value test. So those are the two tests we generally look at most closely. We have to look at not just the entity that's the taxpayer that's selling whatever it is, but then we also have to look at entities that are connected to them, and quite often we have to look at what are called affiliates under the, under the legislation. And when we look at all of those, if we're looking at the small business entity test, our aggregated turnover needs to be less than $2 million. If that's the case, then we meet that condition. If we look at the maximum net asset value test, our net asset value, so this is as relevant assets, less relevant debt, and it has to be relevant debt, needs to be less than $6 million. So if we meet that again, that's the other or condition that we, we look at. So if we meet that, then we're, we're generally home and hosed in terms of uh, small business concessions. For the maximum net asset value test, we have to look at the net value of the CGT assets of the taxpayer 
net value of the CGT assets of any entities connected with the taxpayer and net value of CGT assets of any of the affiliates of the taxpayer or entities connected to that with those affiliates. So it is, a, it is like a family tree tracing exercise to a certain extent. And that family tree we have for both tests. Also for the uh, small business turnover test, yes. we need to look at affiliates and connected entities. Yeah, yeah. so that, that's replicated in terms of the turnover test. In terms of what actually is, and I don't intend to talk more about the turnover test, but more concentrate on net asset test. In terms of what is the net value, it's the, the sum of the market value of the CGT assets less the sum of the liabilities that are related to those assets. So I mentioned before the liability has to actually relate to that interest. If we have a scenario where we have an entity that's connected to us, so say for example we have a discretionary trust and for whatever reason there's another discretionary trust, oh, sorry, I should say, and it holds 100% of the shares in a company. The discretionary trust is carrying on a business and the, the company holds land used in the business, for example. For the net asset value test, because we're taking into 100% of the assets of the company, then the value of those shares in the trust hands are ignored. So we don't have a double counting there. We don't have value of company plus value of assets yeah, in it's company. It's basically like when you consolidate. That, that's right. Um, so in terms of the, the net value, we need to sit down and we have to do this in practice. We have to look at, well, here is our taxpayer entity. All right, what entities are connected to that? What are affiliates? and then have a look at the nature of those assets, what the values are, what the liabilities are. There are some assets that are disregarded in terms of that test. And the first one being assets that are being used solely for personal use and enjoyment of the individual. They have to be individually held. Ownership interests in the individual's dwelling, so our main residence, that's excluded. Policies of insurance, that's not an asset that is included. And right to any amount payable out of any superannuation fund. So we, we take those out of our calculation straight away. Where sometimes people get caught up is that the personal use assets have to be held by the individual. So if, for example, we've got a holiday home in a trust, it may be brought into the net because it's not excluded by that provision. So with that... Oh, I see. I didn't know that. Yeah, it can, depends what, exactly what we're using. So assets used for the personal enjoyment need to be in the taxpayer's, yeah, taxpayer's name. Yeah. Um, so with that... Then we look at, or we have to look at connected entities and affiliates. There is a differentiation with affiliates. So an affiliate is somebody that is an individual or a company or, or trustee that uh, is, is reasonably expected to act in accordance with your wishes. So it's a scenario where an entity is not in effect under the legislation connected to us, but we can be expected that it will act in accordance with our wishes. If that's the case, then we have to take into account some of their assets. However, we don't have to take into account assets that are not used or held ready for use in the carrying of business of the taxpayer or an entity connected with the taxpayer. But very often, if, if somebody's an affiliate and they're holding those assets, then they're going to be included in our net. Um, so it's, it's something we've got to be careful with. I find affiliates really confusing because it's so it's so grey. I much prefer connected entities because with connected entities, I can just yep. calculate the small business participation percentage and then I yes. know yep. it's either more or less than 20% or 40%, yep. etc. But the affiliates, I really struggle with that. And my first thought was that unless you have a really dubious setup where Bob gives his company to his granny but yep. actually runs it, unless you have a really um, dubious setup that almost infringes on Division 4A, 
then you you never have affiliates. But I might be wrong with that because I think spouses and children can be affiliates under certain circumstances. But they can be. There is, and it's a bit of a with spouses and affiliates. Sorry, spouses and children. It can kind of go either way because there's a in effect a deeming provision that if it and I wouldn't say if it's to your advantage, but you can use that deeming provision to make a spouse or a child an affiliate. And for example, that might be the scenario where for whatever reason those children own the business assets. So the business real property is owned in the spouse's name or something like that. But they're not necessarily affiliates just because of their relationship with you. So it does come back more to the circumstances of whether it can be reasonably expected they act in accordance with your wishes. For an example of where we've seen that in practice and applied by the tax office where they tried to include somebody as an affiliate um, was a farming family. So we had mum and dad operating a farming business. It was a cattle business. And surrounding or adjoining that cattle business was uh, the children. And they would allow, and they had their own farm next to mum and dad, and they would allow mum and dad to use... Uh, to the, graze the to cattle. To the cattle. Uh, and under a business, it was a, was a business relationship, but the tax office said, well, they're your affiliate of yours because they're acting in accordance with your wishes and allowing you to, to graze the cattle on the land. So that's an example where it could be that somebody is not normally meant to be an affiliate could be tried to be grouped in. But that would be very dangerous because land is land is expensive, and so yep. if you make the children an affiliate and bring that's, their farms that, into the net asset that, that's, test, that, that's right. then so it probably busts the test. It, it did, and I mean the taxpayer was successful in that on in the AAT, but it, it did require them to give evidence, the children to give evidence, to say, well, no, we just didn't let mum and dad graze their cattle on our property, we, we made our own decisions in relation to it. So it does come back down to that evidence with, as with most tax, tax fights. Yeah. The other thing that we, aside from affiliates, and as you say, the, the, one of the main things that you look at is whether an entity is connected with you. And that's, aside from trusts, that's really as a percentage thing. So as you say, if you, in, in effect, whether it's a company or a unit trust or a partnership, if you have at least 40% of the, the ownership interest in that, then that entity is connected with you and you have to take into account the whole value for the net asset position. So in practice, it's usually the connected entity test you go for because director relationships don't make you an affiliate. Being spouses doesn't necessarily make yep. you an affiliate. Being the trustee... Be, being partners doesn't being make you an affiliate. Being doesn't yep. make you an affiliate. In the usual setup, you have connected entities, but you don't have affiliates. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And the discretionary trusts are slightly different in terms of the way that they're deemed to be connected. But in your normal mum and dad type scenario, most of the entities are going to be connected with them. In, and the reality is that they're meant to be and connected And even with this them. discretionary trust, it's a normal numbers game. You look at the distributions over the last four years and yep. see who received 40% or more in any given of those four that, years. So I think that's also a pure numbers game with a discretionary trust. It, it can be. if you Certainly if you're meeting that percentage game, as you say, in terms of discretionary trust, you're automatically connected to the discretionary trust. If you hold 40% or more but less than 50%, you can apply to the commissioner to show that um, you're not actually connected to that entity. Because somebody else controls it. Yeah. However, in practice, I've... I've never seen that used in practice. It's generally 40%. Let's unless it's a particularly peculiar circumstance. Let's just, let's say that that's connected to you, and we'll take those assets into account when doing the test. So that's a, a normal sort of threshold that for that 40%. If we hit that, that entity is going to be connected with us, and we are going to have to include that in our net asset value test. And this 40% threshold now changes to 20% under the changes. 
if, if we're selling shares. Uh, oh, oh, so it only applies to when we are selling shares. Sh- otherwise, shares it's still units. 40%. It's still 40% otherwise, which is obviously going to lead to a bit of inequality. But yeah, it, that modified 20% rule only applies if we're selling shares or units. So what we need to do in practice, if we're looking at these concessions, as I said, the main, aside from making sure it's an active asset, the main thing that we're going to be looking at is the net asset value and or whether we meet the turnover test, the small business entity test. So it is a case of sitting down and looking at each entity, each asset, how it fits in, whether it meets the requirements, what are the liabilities that are connected with it as well. Adding all of those up, and if we get below $6 million, we're okay for the net asset value test. If we're over $6 million, then we're not going to meet our CGT concessions. So... In, in practice, when you work for a client, most of your time goes into the maximum net asset value test. Not just so much into working out whether something is an active asset or not, not so much into the turnover, but the net asset value test. Yeah, that, that's usually the, the main focus of most advice as to whether they meet the, the maximum net asset value test mm. and looking, how, looking at all of the entities and the assets. How closely did you ever get to the six million? Or how closely did you ever pass six million? Was um, it a matter of hundreds of dollars? No, I mean the, the closest has been a, a few hundred thousand. So quite, yeah. quite well away from the yeah. threshold. I mean, one of the things you can pretty much be guaranteed, experience tells me, is if you are close to that six million, you get audited. Yeah, you'll get an auditor review. So you want to be really clear and really definite in terms of your values and your liabilities at that time. A lot of the cases that revolve around small business concessions are generally where people are trying to be a little bit inventive in terms of that six million and trying to either exclude or assets mm-hmm. or include liabilities. So you've got to recognise that if you're close to six million dollars, you are you're very likely to get yes. an auditor review. Yes. Um, a colleague of mine was three hundred and seventy dollars short of the six million, and so they made sure that everything yeah. fit. And then, of course, the ATO came and audited it. Yeah, but. That's, <laughs> 370 stated, is not, not it's far stated away. It's $370. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, that's very close. So I, I usually say to clients, uh, I mean, any time you do any sort of tax work, there's a chance of getting audit or review. That's, that's a reality. But if you are somewhere, anywhere around the 5 million in terms of what your net assets are, anywhere between 5 and 6 or near 5, you can be pretty much guaranteed that something's going to happen in terms of review. So you want to make sure that that's, that's mm. definite. Because so, there's so much money involved. There is. Whether yeah. somebody um, claims $100 or $200 as a self-education yep. expense yep. doesn't make much difference. No. But whether somebody claims the small business CGT concessions yep. or not can mean hundreds so it, of thousands so, of dollars. I mean, in, in practice, it's, it's in reality, in the normal mum and dad scenario, it's $2 million tax-free using small business concessions and just using some of them. If you qualify for the 15-year rule, it can be much more than that. But So it is large dollars that you could be then a subject to, obviously, reassessment. And it's always much easier to have your evidence and your documents prepared at the time in terms of evaluations and your, your, your documentary evidence to have that ready rather than four or five years down the track trying to be trying to scrabble around and put that together. Because reviews, then there's going to be a time delay in between you lodging your tax return and the review occurring, and that's going to be 18 months to two years. If then you're trying to get all your value, valuations done, it's mm. obviously more difficult than if you have, have it ready at the time. Welcome back. So these are the upcoming changes to the basic conditions, but only if you're selling shares or units. If you're selling business assets that are not in the form of shares or units, then there are no changes, at least for now, but there's probably still more tightening to come. 
In the next episode, episode 72, we will walk through an example of how the small business CDT concessions actually work. We will do that for an asset sale to start with. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.